Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Australian environmental thinker Glenn Albrecht, author of the new book, Earth Emotions, New Words for a New World. Glenn established the now widely used and accepted concept of solastalgia, or the lived experience of negative environmental change. He retired from Murdoch University in 2014 as a professor of sustainability, and he is now an honorary associate in the School of Geosciences at the University of Sydney. We spoke to Glenn about what has become one of the defining emotions of the 21st century. What are some of the positive earth emotions and psychological states that can help us rekindle our love for our home planet? And what steps listeners can take to help move into a new, more positive environmental era? Hello, Glenn. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jonathan. It's great to be with you. It's great to talk with you. Uh, it's, it's interesting working with the uh, time zone. It's 6 p.m. our time and 8 a.m. your time the next day. Um, I'm so glad we were able to uh, talk to each other thanks to technology. Um, exactly. And technology has been an incredible benefit to humanity, and it's also gotten us into a serious problem. Um, as you know, last year's report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was a real eye-opener and uh, caused a lot of consternation uh, around the globe. And most recently, there was a report by the United Nations stating that up to one million plant and animal species face extinction in the coming decades. That, mm. that just hurts. It just hurts. Well, especially because it's a, a huge underestimate. There are, in fact, trillions of organisms that are going to go extinct. Uh, the million is just the ones we can see. Wow, wow. So yeah, so everyone's, well, not everyone, but many, many people are feeling emotionally uh, distraught um, and don't know what to do. It's, it's, this is a scary time um, and people feel emotionally upset, but then don't really know what to do. Um, tell us about what you believe is uh, and what has become one of the defining emotions of the 21st century. Sure, I think you're exactly right that people are emotionally disturbed and what my work is about and what the book Earth Emotions is attempting to convey uh, to readers is this idea that yes, we are in a time of emotional upheaval. Uh, we're bearing witness to the destruction of uh, the life on Earth at a, uh, at a pace and scale that's never be before seen in history. And that report on the loss of biodiversity that you mentioned is, uh, is proof of that. We don't have to guess about it any longer. And of course, we're also aware that there are massive changes going on that are affecting lives all over the planet. And the climate warming issue is one that... Uh, now just about everybody who's alive and kicking is, is acutely aware of. So what I've tried to identify is that the, the distress that people are feeling about these unwelcome and negative changes is actually something that, uh, in particular, in the English language, have, we have very little uh, descriptive terms that we can use to even talk about these changes and uh, we, we don't have the, the conceptual apparatus to talk about the distress even. We can feel it. But now I think what I've 
tried to do in Earth Emotions and my work is to give clear expression to the nature of these emotions that we're feeling. And I've given them names and defined them so that we can actually communicate with each other in a way that's far more effective than before. And it's not just effective communication, it's also communication and sharing is a way of understanding that the problem is not your own. It's not uh, an isolated issue that in fact other people, indeed all over the world in their millions, uh, are experiencing similar emotional distress and need as well to be able to communicate that with uh, their fellow humans, their families, their children, in order to, A, recognise that we have a problem, and B, then to start thinking about, well, what emotionally do we do next? Uh, uh, I'm a philosopher, so I'm not going to be coming up with some new kind of technology to solve the problem, and I'm not even sure that we can solve the problem through technology alone. I think what, what my work indicates is that we need an, an emotional uh, revolution as well as thinking about uh, how our material existence might change into the future. So yeah, so um, this whole focus on emotions, I mean, your book's called Earth Emotions, New Words for New Worlds. Uh, you put one word on the map um, a few decades ago, solastalgia. Could you explain a little bit more about that term? Yes, solastalgia means the, uh, it's a form of distress or homesickness that people have when they're still at home. And the reason I created that term was to try and describe the distress that people in the uh, coal mining areas of New South Wales were experiencing uh, as their home territory, as their region was being uh, desolated by a, a huge expanses of open pit or open cut coal mining. So if your neighbour is a, uh, a large coal mine, it's quite clear that the, the, the home environment that you live in is now hostile to your needs. What's happening is that you're getting dust, noise, explosions, uh, 24-7, 365 days a year, and quite possibly for decades. And that was the trigger for thinking, well, this uh, distress that people are experiencing from this uh, desolation of their home environment is something that's uh, not just confined to mining communities and people living within mined regions. It's something which can also apply to other aspects of our lives where there is a... Uh, an intrusion or a, uh, an invasion, as it were, of noise, dust, uh, uh, environmental change generally that's causing people distress. And it's generally uninvited or unwelcome. They're not, it's not something they want in their lives. They want it out. So solastalgia started as a concept to describe the distress caused by mining. But since then, uh, that was in the early... Uh, 2000, 2003 is when the concept first was created. Since then, uh, I have applied it to many other contexts where there are clear examples of distress in the environment. And of course, as development uh, and climate warming have, uh, have uh, increased over this uh, last uh, 15 to 20 years, the circumstances 
under which solastalgia can be felt have greatly increased. And so when I write about the age of solastalgia, I'm writing about uh, the fact that we're now living in a world which is experiencing change, which many feel is negative rather than neutral or positive. And these negative changes are very disturbing. They disrupt people's lives. But that we didn't have a word in English to describe that kind of negative experience and the ongoing distress that it causes. So there was a gap in our language and hopefully I filled it with the concept of solastalgia. It's not the only negative concept that uh, we could think of. There are many others and um, I, uh, I've really tried to put together a, a typology or a, a glossary of all of the different terms that have been used not only by me or created by me, but also that have been contributed by others in the literature. Uh, I even had to describe or create a new term for that literature, which I call the psychotyratic, where psycho means of the mind and teratic means of the earth. So these are earth psyche relationships. And it, again, it just blew me away that uh, in English we had virtually nothing to guide us with that kind of terminology. And it's an indication that we must have just taken for granted those relationships that we have with the earth. They're so integral to us being human that we didn't have to uh, tease them out and discuss them. Philosophers have not thought, thought of that kind of relationship as uh, uh, important. You know, we've discussed justice within the human community, but we've really not uh, had much discussion in, in philosophy or other uh, domains of this intimate relationship between humans and their support environment. And the only place where we have is probably within the world of literature, you know, so uh, poets and writers of various sorts, uh, dramatists have, have, have engaged that theme. Uh, but of course, poetry uh, can evoke feelings and emotions and enable us to uh, empathize. But when we need to analyze and start to think about, uh, well, how do we in ordinary conversations or in academic research begin to uh, appreciate the psychotyratic in more detail, that's where our language needs to, be, needs to become more precise, more evocative of what's actually going on in our heads and in the world. That makes sense, and it's 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 fascinating that you've you know you've taken you've you're evolving our language so that we can evolve our behavior. Uh, yes, very much so. Uh, both on the negative and positive side of our relationships, because I mean, if I don't want to get into a, the medicalization of anything that I do, because I'm a philosopher, I don't work within a medical context. But the diagnosis of what's going wrong involves. Uh, a language that we can share. It involves a language that enables us to compare and contrast the negative with something which is its opposite, a positive relationship that we could have with the earth. And so that's why I've been constantly evolving uh, both positive and negative new terms to try and capture the full uh, nuances of this relationship that we have with the earth as a, as a species, as, as humans. Yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant, brilliant work. I mean, I, just some of the, you know, just to focus on the negative for a second, 
you know, you, uh, some of the terms, a nature deficit disorder, ecophobia, um, eco-anxiety, uh, medio-anxiety, uh, you just have, you, and you have a glossary of, of psychoteratic terms in the back. These are specifically yep. your, your terms that you've created. Uh, That's right. I'm hoping that others, you know, for the other terms, people can look them up. And for example, with nature deficit disorder, that comes from the work of Richard Louvre. Um, and I think that's a, a tremendously important contribution to our understanding of uh, what's happening to our children and the failure to socialise children in a way that uh, enables them to even have empathy with the natural world and, and life systems. So uh, I, I've tried to find people with similar interests to myself. And of course, people like Richard Louvre, uh, The Last Child in the Woods uh, was, was his fabulous book that got millions of people thinking about these issues. So uh, I consider him to be a, a, a great colleague and fellow worker within the psychotheratic. Excellent, excellent. Um, so we have, a, we have uh, the, uh, these new terms. Um, what are some of, and many, and, you know, it's split between negative and positive. What are some yep. of the positive earth emotions and psychological states that we can embody to help pull us out of these feelings of despair and rekindle our love for the planet? Sure. I think one of the, the most powerful and one that's most familiar to readers uh, particularly in North America, would be the concept of biophilia, which was um, popularised by E.O. Wilson. It was an idea that was actually created um, by um, an earlier philosopher. But I, I think the, the idea of biophilia or love of life is something that Wilson suggested was deeply ingrained within us as humans, as animals, and quite possibly hardwired or genetic so that... Uh, we've evolved out of the rest of life, it's no surprise that we should have powerful positive connections to it. And so this idea of biophilia can be contrasted uh, with uh, a, a dislike of life or a hatred of life, you know, the, the whole idea of biophobia, that you're actually fearful of things uh, that are living, uh, which is a bit odd given that we're a living being ourselves. <laughs> but, uh, if people are not uh, growing up or experiencing nature, if there, there is a, a nature deficit in their lives, then of course uh, nature is going to be scary uh, unless it's contained within uh, the discovery channel or on a tiny screen or in some way that's safe and removed from people and their everyday experiences. Uh, I mean, some people are incredibly frightened of even um, insects or uh, small, tiny specks of nature that might just happen to come their way. So the biophilia versus the biophobia uh, is a starting point. Uh, and I think bio means life. You can begin to think about uh, other philias. Philia just means love of. And so we could think about ecophilia, which is the love of, uh, of ecosystems at large scale. The geographer... Tuan created the concept of topophilia, which topos means place or landscape, so the love of landscape. And I, I'm hugely indebted to Tuan's work uh, for uh, enabling me to think about the positive side of our relationship to place, uh, territory, home and landscape. 
I've created terms such as endomophilia, and endomo uh, comes from endemic. And, uh, demos comes from people, like the same root as democracy. Uh, and so within topophilia, there's a subset where those who live in their home environment can be deeply in love with the very particular and unique aspects of their home. And so that if something can't be replicated anywhere else, that's uh, something which is endemic. Uh, I grew up in Perth in Western Australia. It has one of the highest rates of uh, endemic flora and fauna of anywhere in the world. It's a biodiversity hotspot. So if you grow up there and you don't get some endomophilia in your blood and your mind and your heart, then really you must be brain dead because it's, it's one of the things that is so distinctive and interesting about living in that part of the world. It also happens to be one of the most isolated parts of the planet. So if you were born into Perth, it's I think still the most isolated capital city in the world. And so you don't get a chance to actually, uh, until you a backpacking hippie in your late teens or early 20s, get a chance to get out of Perth. And so you're kind of locked into this uh, unique environment. And in my view, to grow to love it is something that's almost impossible to avoid. And in particular, when you see it being destroyed for further development on a large scale, uh, that's the beginnings of a relationship that you have, uh, which I consider to be the, the psychotyratic. The, the earth psyche relationship is delicately poised and that uh, as soon as something goes wrong, you can be in, uh, in the negative psychotyratic solastalgic state. When you see places that are still intact, still wild, still giving generously of the, the, the plants and animals that have evolved in a place over time in Australia, it's, we're talking millions of years, then uh, there's the opportunity for these really positive experiences. And I've got, uh, you know, so we've got biophilia, uh, topophilia. Uh, I've also created a concept which I call Utieria, which means, U means good, Tierra is the earth. Uh, Utieria is a good earth feeling because there are times when the, uh, the environment that you're immersed in is so rich, so interesting, and so... Uh, rewarding that you lose any uh, disconnect between yourself and the object uh, around you. You become at one with the earth. So in the past, we've, we've used terms like that oceanic experience to describe what it's like to be lost in the moment of riding the perfect wave in Hawaii or somewhere like that, or what people sometimes nowadays call forest bathing, where you could just go into a forest and you merge as one with the soil, the rocks, the trees, the, the animals and plants that are there. And when you have that feeling, rather than three words, that oceanic experience, I created one new one, which is Utieria, a good earth feeling. And because I'm more interested in that secular response to our emotional engagement with the earth, I've tried where possible to create new terms where they were previously lacking. And so UT area is one of my contributions to, to the, uh, to the psychotyratic on the, on the positive side. There are still words that I'm creating, concepts that I'm create, creating that have 
never been published before. They're in the book. And I'm hoping to uh, stimulate and challenge people to see their relevance. And I also invite people to uh, create their own words where they see uh, a lack and the need to actually create uh, and fill in a, a space that they feel emotionally but is not being captured within our, our language as yet. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, these are all uh, amazing concepts and, and new ways forward. And it seems that one of your biggest terms from what I can take from your book is the idea of the symbiocene. That this seems to yes. be the light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully, <laughs> that we can move towards. What, what's well, that's the, right. What, first, I guess, explain what the symbiocene is and then what you see as what we can do individually as, uh, and as well as collectively to move towards this. Sure. Well, the way I've tried to explain this uh, in the book is, is as an author, I've, I've constructed two memes, a meme being a, uh, a powerful shaper of our culture. The meme of the Anthropocene is the one that's dominating in the world of science. And we describe the Anthropocene as the new era where humans dominate all other things on the planet. Well, I see the Anthropocene is also the, the, the background or the, the major way to understand negative Earth emotions. So the solastalgia, the ecocide, all of the uh, nature deficit disorder, they're all coming to the fore because the Anthropocene as a period in our history is generating huge negative changes to the Earth. And uh, the correlates of that in our minds and, and, and expressed as our emotions are these negative uh, conditions that I, I describe in the book, the, the global dread, the eco-paralysis, the eco-anxiety, the solastalgia, and there's probably worse uh, coming down the track. Uh, solastalgia being you know, a non-medical condition, an exis existential distress. Uh, and we know that there are global epidemics of clinically defined depression, and that may also become a huge factor where um, you know, a, a much more serious form of distress will have to be addressed. So if the Anthropocene is the way of understanding and defining negative earth, earth emotions, I figured that we actually don't have a way of understanding our positive earth emotions, uh, mainly because we don't have a, a context. To the, in, in the past, the context would have been uh, wildness, wilderness, relatively undamaged places, non-toxic, where humans could have uh, experiences of a positive kind without even the need to define them. Again, E.O. Wilson, uh, I quote him saying that people go to the beach or to the ocean to walk along the beach uh, and, and without having uh, any reason that they could put into words to do so. It's like an instinct or a, a feeling that this must be done. And of course, it delivers in spades good earth emotions. You experience area when you go to the ocean and you merge the self in with the, the waves, the tides, the birds, the horizon, and everything that oceans deliver, including water. So this 
idea of creating the symbiocene is a meme where the positive emotions that we hold within us can find an outlet. And so at the moment, a lot of the science is telling us gloom and doom. You know, we've got major scientific papers, we've got feature articles in the, uh, the most important newspapers on the planet telling us about the apocalypse is coming, the eco-apocalypse, insect again on um, feature articles telling us that we're, we're doomed as a species. And I don't accept that that is the, uh, the end of the story for humans. I think that our emotional uh, makeup is such that we will respond to the negative with a desire to find a way of expressing the positive. And for me, these this is how we emotionally engage with the issue of climate change and negative development you know, um, mass clearing of forests for toilet paper or tissues, that sort of thing. So the, the symbiocene is a future era that I see based on uh, what the Greeks call symbios. This is where the word symbiosis comes from. Symbios, S-U-M-B-I-O-S, means living together. And I saw this concept as absolutely critical to the future of humanity as I see it. Because at the moment, what we're doing is busting these uh, living arrangements with other species in a way that's never before occurred in human history. So what we're seeing is the breaking up of symbiosis as a way that life actually prevails on the planet. The symbiocene is a new era where we protect that which remains and rebuild symbiotic relationships with our other living creatures. And this is not just we do this from an environmental perspective because that implies that the world outside is somehow separate from us. Uh, we've discovered things like the microbiome, which is the symbiotic community that lives within inside us as uh, trillions of bacteria, microbes, viruses and fungi that help us live. So life is a cooperative enterprise. It's something that we need to understand as not just a pleasant uh, alternative to death, but it's actually <laughs> totally vital to the whole way that the world, as quite possibly the, the unique living planet in the, the cosmos or even the universe, how it works. So the symbiocene or the symbiocene is the next era where humans reintegrate their emotional and practical lives with something that has uh, the chance to continue indefinitely into the future. And so the reason for creating it was to say, well, look, yes, we are distressed. We are feeling pain about our relationship to the earth right now, but that's not what we are as a species because we co-evolved with everything else. We've, we've spent the last 300 years you know, sometimes called the industrial and technologi technological revolution, uh, alienating and separating ourselves from the rest of that nature. Well, we're going to have to, in a hurry, spend uh, the next decades uh, and beyond reintegrating ourselves. And that involves an emotional and intellectual engagement with the concept of symbiosis and its importance. And it, it also involves you know, architects, engineers, uh, all sorts of practical people 
trying to figure out, well, how do we replace plastic with biodegradable wood-based cellulose products? So how can we convert our um, plastic coffee cup using coffee grounds to produce a compostable coffee cup? All of those ideas sound you know, almost trivial, but start thinking about what it is that almost 8 billion people do daily. And the impacts are so huge now that every single thing that we do is going to have to be reintegrated into the rest of life. And if it's toxic, if it's not biodegradable, if it's not able to be utilised in some way by uh, the cycle of life on the planet, well, then uh, it's out. It's not permissible. We no longer can afford to even pollute small places on the planet because there's nowhere else to go. So the symbiocene is a meme that helps us re-engage with our emotions, our positive earth emotions. And I'm hoping that it will excite interest in the creative response to the Anthropocene. Artists are already doing this, and I think it's possible for you know, millions of others to do so. And I've created, uh, I guess it's another meme, I call it Generation Symbiocene, these are the young people and those of any other generation who feel that this uh, slide that humanity has taken into the depths of the Anthropocene needs to be reversed. And so there's this exciting opportunity for humans to be creative, to transform, uh, to be transformative, to be uh, you know, doing what humans are really good at, which is to use their intelligence. Uh, we, we are after after all, called homo sapiens. We use our intelligence to reconnect to the rest of life in the most sophisticated and intelligent way that we can think of. And this is certainly no return to the cave or simplistic ways of living. Uh, it's something which I see as being uh, incredibly complex, incredibly creative, uh, to use our full intelligence to understand how we relate to the rest of life. And if we do that well, we could be in the symbiocene within decades. And we can see already that there are certain elements of life that are, are rapidly heading in that direction. So that's what the symbiocene is. It doesn't exist right now. I guess as a philosopher, I'm saying that it ought to exist. And if, uh, if it's a moral or ethical response, uh, that also means it can. It's practical. We can do it. Uh, and I'm hoping to give uh, younger people in particular, I'm now 66, so unfortunately not in that category any longer, uh, but I'm a father and a grandfather, so I'm hoping to give the younger generations an immense amount of optimism and hope for the future. And uh, although some might criticise hope as a concept, and it's uh, obviously one that's been overused in the past, uh, I see it as vital because uh, what's the point of being committed to something in the future unless you have some hope that it will come about? And so I'm, I'm creating a hopeful and optimistic meme uh, and presenting it to the world through the book Earth Emotions with a view that this is a practical hope. It's not an uh, idealistic. It's based on science. Uh, there's virtually no f formal philosophy in the book. Uh, it's even offering a secular religious or spiritual version of the symbiotic as a way to address our, uh, our 
spiritual or search for meaning aspects of being human, which I think for many is incredibly important. So a secular search for meaning is what I think the symbiocene also provides. And it provides a framework for just about every other aspect of life, uh, including those that I have no ability to uh, contribute to in any great or meaningful way, because I, although I'm a transdisciplinary thinker, and although I live on Wallaby Farm and grow vegetables, uh, my practical contribution to uh, the earth in the form of design and technology is, is limited to growing vegetables. Well, well, I, you have you've done much more than grow vegetables with this gem. You've you've <laughs> you've you've developed a, a whole new system, a whole new way of thinking. And if there's anything we need in this world, is a new way of thinking. So by by creating and naming things that haven't been named, you've you've pushed us uh, many steps closer to unraveling or or reimagining where we can go. Um, and and you, as you well know, I don't have to tell you this. There's been decades and decades of of this behavior, as well as uh, news media that this continually presents gloom and doom. Um, and if and if we can. Uh, with the help of your your ideas and with a new uh, set of optimism, I'm I'm hopeful that we can we can step out of this and really uh, change the future towards a much more positive note. And your book is is definitely a, a really really good first step. And I'm so thankful that you've written it. Well, thank thank you for that. That's entirely the reason why I was uh, inspired to write it was that. Of course, I'm well known for solastalgia and the negative, but really deep inside me, or not even deep, just scratch the surface. And I'm incredibly optimistic person about what possible future humans could have. And I have a vested interest in the future. It seems like it's a good thing to have rather than uh, the, uh, the apocalypse. So uh, I, I just can't understand why people are not already uh, lined up card-carrying members of the symbiocene. Uh, and in my view, once you start thinking about the symbiocene as an idea, you're you're already in it. You can't get your head out of it once it's already been suggested to you. So I'm hoping that, I mean, uh, instead of talking about it being going viral, which uh, is is a, a common term, I'm th I think it more more is like the microbiome becomes healthy again. At the, you know, at the moment it's very unhealthy and. Uh, it's on the verge of uh, expiring. Uh, so it's like we need to revive the, the microscopic world that actually supports everything that we do. You know, we, we actually are sitting here talking to each other courtesy of our gut bacteria. We need to acknowledge those kinds of revolutions in our thinking that have occurred uh, through science over the last few decades. We, we now know that it's the invisible that keeps us going, not the big church, the big man, uh, you know, the, the big tree view of life. Uh, and so these ideas are revolutionary and they've come out of science and I'm now putting them into um, culture and philosophy and creative thinking. So I think there's huge potential for people to just take these ideas and run with them and do whatever they like, um, as long as it's, I, I guess, a... Uh, 
uh, a full frontal assault on the direction of the Anthropocene because there's no doubt that it's powerful and it's not going to move in a hurry without a lot of resistance. And this is where I'm buoyed by uh, the work of Greta Thunberg and the Extinction Rebellion people. I, I attend the um, school strike with the kids whenever I can. You know, this, this is an exciting moment of change and I hope the book will push just that little bit harder to get people moving in this direction. The, the kids clearly can see the, that they don't want a future that's eco-apocalyptic. Uh, and the adults are kind of still deeply buried and uh, with a vested interest in continuing the present. Well, I'm hoping the book will actually be read by people of all ages, but particularly people of my generation and slightly younger, because we're the ones that have created the problem. We're the ones that are actually preventing change right now. Uh, and that process, I think, just needs uh, transformation. It requires some aspects of really disruptive thought. And so as, as well as being hopefully a good read, I'm hoping that people will be totally disrupted by what, what they learn and how to apply that, that knowledge uh, to create the symbiocene. So I actually think the symbiocene could be a new geological era. And in the book, I actually write that when the geologists and biologists discover an, a new uh, living film of life on the planet sitting on top of all of the detritus and toxicity of the Anthropocene, they can declare a new geological epoch, which is the symbiocene. Uh, the, there will be a, a, a biofilm, or what I call a symbiofilm, sitting on top of <clears throat> the wreck that uh, those who controlled the Anthropocene tried to <clears throat> impose on us. So that's, that's what I'm hoping, is that it's, it's, it's an act of creation, but it's also something that's so entirely practical we could actually declare it as a geological era, era at uh, some point in the future. Well, we are so excited to be publishing your book and we're gonna do our darndest to get it in the hands of as many people, disrupt their minds and uh, create this revolution that you have started. Um, we're in this together and uh, your new ideas are the beginning of, of us all uh, stepping into the symbiocene and I'm really excited again uh, to be part of this and want to thank you again for all the work that you've done to, to make this happen. My, my pleasure. So thank you very much for talking to me and asking such good, good questions. Excellent. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you and I'll talk to you again soon. Okay. See you later. Take care. That was Glenn Albrecht, author of the new book, Earth Emotions, New Words for a New World. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on Glenn's new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSANNOUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.